You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. David Darlington is the author of In Condor Country, Angels Visits, published in paperback as Zin, The Mojave, and Area 51. He's a special correspondent for Wine and Spirits and the recipient of the 2008 James Beard Foundation Award for writing on spirits, wine, or beer. His new book is An Ideal Wine, One Generation's Pursuit of Perfection and Profit in California. Thank you for joining me, David. Thank you. Great to be here. You know, uh, what interests me is what I think is at the heart of this book is something that's bigger than the wine uh, uh, industry in which you put it, which is this meeting, this conflict between an ever-advancing technology and ancient art where the technology is getting good enough to examine the art at an atomic level and be able to reproduce it. This is, book is in many ways about the CGI, CGI of the art world. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I, I say uh, pretty near the beginning of the book that um, uh, the, the wine world just reflects the uh, larger world that we're a part of. That's, that's what got me interested in wine as a writer originally uh, <clears throat> 30 years ago. And as everything now is becoming so uh, uh, digitally manipulated, as it were, um, the uh, wine world reflects this. That you, you can, with, through high technology now, you can manipulate wine in so many different ways to make it uh, conform to a certain ideal, as it were. Um, then it, you, the same question arises with regard to wine that arises with regard to so many other pursuits nowadays, you know, I'm thinking about things like, <clears throat> excuse me, digital photography, uh, you know, special effects, um, uh, cosmetic surgery. There's a question, Mark, that's continually over our heads nowadays when we look at almost anything is, well, uh, how, how real is this? You and know, and it, how it, much does that matter? Yeah, and, and wine being, uh, having so much rhetoric surrounding it, as being a natural product of the earth, something that represents a place, you know, something that connects us to the land. And um, the, the fact that uh, so many wineries mouth this catechism while behind the scenes they're doing something completely different to uh, make it fit a certain taste profile is kind of the central tension, uh, one of the central tensions in the wine world today along you know, connected very closely to the uh, economic tensions that uh, go along with any business. And what I found out, uh, you know, from talking to these people who I kind of trace from their beginnings in the 70s up right through the present, is that um, that uh, the, the, what they found out was they, they got into wine thinking it was, you know, this romantic pursuit that was, going to connect them to their souls in all these ways. And they found out pretty quickly, actually, gee, you know what, this is a business and we have to make money in order to survive. And what paralleled that was the rise of critics like Robert Parker and the Wine Spectator, which uh, came to control the industry through their scoring and critiquing of wine on behalf of the consumer. 
Now, that really, score is really interesting to me. Um, tell us about the creation of that score, because as you say, this is the, um, the linchpin around which um, the economic and artistic concerns are. It's like the sun around which all these other concerns are now circle. And it wasn't always there, was it? No, I think uh, that I'm pretty sure that uh, the person who developed this was Robert M. Parker Jr. of the Wine Advocate, whose name is bandied about in the industry as uh, you know nothing less uh, uh, powerful than uh, you know a, a deity. He's, <laughs> he, he's been he's been called the most uh, powerful critic of any kind in any field, the extent to which he influences the industry. Um, and Parker essentially took the uh, American grade school scoring system, uh, the 100-point scale, and transferred it over to wine. Uh, so it was immediately something that anyone who grew up going to school and getting report cards could relate to. Um, and uh, basically the, the, the problem for winemakers is that if you don't get a, at least a 90 from Parker, then you're in trouble. Uh, any, anything less, even though those are considered very good wines. You know, if, if a wine gets an 89, um, cr- consumers just say, oh, well, I'm not going to bother with that. And so they internalize this, and the person in my book who really has profited from that is Leo McCloskey, who actually got his start in Santa Cruz, in the Santa Cruz Mountains, at first working for Ridge Vineyards back mm-hmm. in the 70s. And Leo, um, following the, uh, on the heels of an Australian scientist uh, named uh, uh, T.C. Summers, um, developed a system that correlates the chemical makeup of wine with critical scores. So he can, he can look at wines that get good scores from, from uh, Parker, the spectator, or whoever, and then analyze the chemistry and say, okay, um, what's responsible for the good score here? He's and digitized good taste. <laughs> exactly, and it it got to the point where uh, you know at, at Ridge, you know, Leo was working with Paul Draper, who is a uh, you know, probably California's most renowned winemaker, a longtime champion of what we call terroir, which is uh, for the wine to express the place, and uh, increasingly locked horns with Paul because Leo was coming more and more around to a position where. It seemed that you could evaluate a wine and its worth uh, and its value without even tasting it, mm-hmm. just, just just by looking at the uh, chemistry. This is art versus science in 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 a really big way. And it, again, this is a, a conflict that is really prevalent in the modern world. But here, art versus science has serious economic implications because we all have our own sense of taste and, and and who knows that you whether or not you and I see red the same color red when we see red and who knows whether we taste the same bottle of wine the same way that's exactly right and that's what makes uh, Leo and his company Enologics so controversial is that you know there there's the uh, the age old maxim there's no accounting for taste <laughs> now there is exactly <laughs> you know Leo has proclaimed that quality is a metric and there's no arguing about it. Um, you know, if, if, if this is the chemistry, this is how good the wine is. Although he admits that it's, it's based on, on critics. It's giving all power to the critical palate and trusting their judgment rather than the judgment of, you know, 
uh, the everyday uh, Joe consumer who goes into a wine store um, and picks out something from a shelf. What, I, what I've found with a lot of uh, these wines, and apparently even winemakers who make them agree off the record, um, is that wines that will really uh, make a big impact on you, uh, just tasting them by themselves, one or two sips, um, or in a blind tasting compared to other wines where the wines that uh, have the most visceral impact uh, stand out. Um, when you sit down to dinner, say, later that night with that same wine and start to uh, drink it with food, it's a whole different ball game. And I've uh, often had the experience of not being able to drink the same wine that made such a big impression on me in, in, a, in isolation, in a tasting, uh, not being able to drink it with a meal. It just was like too much, too over the top. You know, uh, whereas wines that don't make a big impression, this is certainly not a universal rule, a lot of wines that don't make a good impression on you on first sip may not be good wines. But I think the more that the, Euro- the European model and quote-unquote ideal is wine that doesn't call so much attention to itself but harmonizes with food really beautifully. And I've also had, often had the experience that tasting a wine by itself, well, no big deal have it with food, all of a sudden, hey, this is really good. So it's a whole different gestalt. Um, and the person who kind of sums up that point of view in the book is uh, Santa Cruz's own uh, favorite son, Randall Graham, of Bonnie Dune Vineyard. Uh, the structure that my book kind of follows is I met Randall and Leo almost at the same time back around the late 80s. Mm-hmm. So this is a generational story. And, you know, that kind of interests me because wine, more than anything else, and still is a family business. And so it's something that where the generational aspect really matters. Well, do you think it really is still a family business? Is it really? Well, that's what one of the things I think your book explores, I think, in an interesting way to look at it through that kind of uh, a lens. I mean, you've been taught, you've known these people for a long time. Yeah, and that's uh, you know that, that that's a fun thing to be able to do. It's um, to follow the, that. You know, I think the way that you get depth from anything, uh, from you know, is examining it for a long period of time and really getting to know it. Um, it's kind of a, a a flaw of mine in a way that I take a really long time <laughs> to uh, to look at things and try to figure them out. Um, I often strike myself as. Uh, being rather uh, dense on this score. Um, the advantage is that, you know, over time you do develop uh, a pretty complex, um, well-acquainted relationship with the subject. And um, I met Randall at a dinner party across the street from my house in Berkeley, actually, in, uh, sometime around 1989, I think, um, when he was, uh, as I put it in the book, on, the, uh, on an ascending arc in the most admired phase of his career when he was really the, uh, the darling of the critics. Um, Robert Parker declared Randall a, a, a genius and a national treasure. And uh, as the book tells the story, over time, Randall, who is, you know, I think by far the most original and amusing person in the California wine world, um, and always has been, um, uh, got, he, he, Randall has so many ideas and is so creative 
that he uh, he never sticks with one thing for very long. He's mm. he's always uh, moving on to the next idea, and um, it, it's something that has uh, been an eternal source of both inspiration and frustration uh, for the people who follow him and who work with him. Um, as time went on, Randall became uh, better known for um, bargain wines with funny labels, because uh, Randall, if he was not a winemaker, he would have been a fiction writer or, um, uh, who knows, uh, a, a, a cartoonist or something like mm. that. Uh, it's something I found out in this book that um, I think is little known is that Randall only had two jobs before he started Bonnie Doon, um, and the first one was connected to, well, both of them were connected to uh, the, the two iconic comedy TV shows uh, of the 60s. One was Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, uh, who were sort of background partners in the Beverly Hills wine merchant shop where Randall first got exposed to wine. And the other one was the uh, Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, which uh, um, you know was famous for airing topical uh, political satire on TV, running afoul of the censors and everything else. And Dick Smothers had a winery in the Santa Cruz Mountains where... Randall went to work after he got on UC Davis. And uh, there's a chapter in the book that kind of chronicles the, uh, the UC Davis wine department in the 70s mm. when all of these baby boomers uh, were looking for something to, to do with their lives and glommed on to wine as the pursuit that was going to fulfill their destinies. You know, this book, too, gives a portrait of the wine industry that is really shocking to, to those of us who don't know much about wine and how technological it is. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, innovation because that's something that's just a, a really wild uh, concept. Yeah, innovation was started by a guy named Clark Smith, who was another one of these uh, sort of baby boomer genius figures who glommed onto wine as the place that, that uh, um, sort of summed up all, all reality for him. And um, Clark also went to UC Davis, and he developed the, um, the process of reverse osmosis, which uh, was, I think, originally developed by the U.S. Navy for desalinating seawater. Um, and he figured out how to use it to uh, adjust the alcohol level on wine. And essentially you do it by taking the wine apart, literally, into its different components like water and alcohol and what he calls flavor, <laughs> which is actually something you can, you can extract from the wine and, and put in a jar, uh, the, the, the wine's flavor. And then um, you, Clark does tests then with calibrating the alcohol back into the wine at different incremental levels. And you, you line them up, say, 10 or 12 wines, and you taste through them, and you, say, you decide which ones appeal to you the most. And the alcohol level um, that you choose, and it can be different for different styles, like maybe in 12 wines, uh, there's one with lower alcohol that's more the European model, one with higher, richer alcohol, more the New World model. Um, but then you can put the wine back together again with the alcohol adjusted to that level, and uh, that's your ideal wine. Um, so, again, obviously a controversial thing, although Clark will make the case that wine regions 
all over the world adjust alcohol, but the French just adjust it up instead of down through uh, <laughs> through what's called, um, uh, I'm blanking on the term right now, but it's when they actually add sugar to the wine during fermentation um, to, uh, to to beef up the alcohol and the, and the mouthfeel. And in France, this is legal because they have bad weather there, often during harvest. It's cold, it's rainy, not like California where, you know, they say every year is a vintage year because it's so warm and dry as a rule. And when it's cold and rainy, the grapes don't get as ripe. Um, sometimes they need more alcohol to make the wine taste richer. So Clark Smith says, well, if that's okay, you know, how come it's not okay, you know, to do what we're doing? Um, and it's all these, you know, shades of gray and slippery slopes and relative kind of comparisons that that people you know, that characterize the wine world today is, you know, doing, again, manipulating technology to make a wine fit the ideal of a, uh, of a natural product. Um, Whoever might have guessed that the phrase, is it real or is it Memorex, would be applied to wine. <laughs> kind of a... Uh, kind of sobering. It is. <laughs> and that itself is sobering. I've been speaking with David Darlington. His new book is An Ideal Wine. He'll be at the Capitola Book Cafe on Monday, July 11th at 7.30 p.m. Thank you for joining me, David. Thank you. You know, if I could put uh, one plug in here, I, I'm told that Randall uh, Graham is going to be attending the, the uh, that um, that event and pouring some Bonnie Dune wine. So Randall has not yet uh, uh, told me what he thinks of the book. So uh, maybe I can finally find out. <laughs> well, that sounds like an entertaining uh, scene in and of itself. We'll uh, we'll make sure that uh, we're there to try to record that. Thanks for joining me, David. Well, thank you very much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.